Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, starting in the sixth chapter and reading verses 29 through 31. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And may the Lord bless the reading of this word to our understanding this morning. Uh, Let's ask him to bring it alive and truly apply it uh, to each and every one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we know these words, most of us very well, especially that last verse. And so often we just delegate it to something we know, but not something that we consider to be as important, as significant as it actually is. And, and, And if we do understand its significance, then we understand how desperately we need you. And so I pray that that's exactly what will happen today, that we'll just drive it home, what, what this command means and what all these commands means and what, what you're saying to us in this part of your great Sermon on the Mount, that we would take it to heart and recognize once again how completely, totally, and eternally we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a, a great song that I really like to listen to. Um, it, it's one of those songs that just kind of gets me right where I live, kind of pushes a button in me. I, you know, I know that everyone has songs like that. Well, this one is one that, that is simply called, Lord, I Need You. And the lyrics of the refrain go something like this. Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you. I... Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. And and, and every time I hear those words, I I am reminded how sweet it is. In fact, I want to make the argument today that these are the sweetest words that any human being can hear themselves articulate and when they mean it, when it comes from the heart. Because as, as most of you know, the fact that we say, Jesus, I need you, means we understand our own spiritual state before a holy God. We understand our spiritual depravity. We understand that we can never be perfect enough to stand in the presence of a holy God. And therefore, we desperately need a Savior. And so if we can actually say that and mean it, those are the sweetest words anyone can say. Jesus, I need you. I need you in the depths of my heart, in the depths of my soul. I can't take a breath without you. I am lost without you. I am damned without you. So therefore, I just desperately need you. And I believe that what Jesus is teaching us in his word right now is to drive us to that realization. It's not just to be negative. It's not just to talk about all the things you can't do. It is to place you in a situation where you recognize that you need Jesus. Because if you know you need Jesus, then you turn to him, as so many of us have. Now, as we've been going through this particular part of Luke, if you were here last week, you know that that was kind of the overriding statement that we ended with. Jesus, I need you. 
Because no one can do what Jesus commanded us to do. And we talked about the only kind of love that is actually going to love in the way that Jesus just told us to love is the love that comes from God. And so therefore, we're going to have to love not with our fallen human selves, but with our redeemed selves. Because Jesus told us flat out to do things that I don't believe that any fallen human being can do. Love your enemies right, right off the bat. Who can love their enemies? We have enough trouble loving the ones who love us, loving the people who are like us, loving the people that we like. Loving our own family members sometimes is hard, much less loving your enemies. But Jesus tells us with a full and a compassionate and a complete love to love those who wish us harm. And then he goes on and he puts it in sort of a physical sense to do good for those who hate you. Those who are actively in the process of hating you, I want you to do good. Now that's not some kind of random act of kindness, not a list of a mechanical kinds of things you can do. It means to do things that will profit those who hate you. And just to make sure that your heart's in the right place, he says, bless those who curse you. And once again, it's an ongoing, in the process, while they're cursing, you bless them. Bestow good things upon them. And then he really cooks it up a notch when he puts it into the context of our spiritual life. Pray for those who are actively abusing you while they abuse you. Pray for them. Ask God's blessings upon those who are abusing you. And and I I made the, 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 the final conclusion We can't do that. (laughs) That's impossible for a fallen human. So if you are going to do that, then you need Jesus. That's the only way. I mean, that, that, that is to drive us to the cross, to drive us to the understanding that we need him. Well, in our text for this morning, we're, we're going to, it's going to be sort of divided into to two um, kind of segments. Could have divided it, but I, I think it sort of fits together. The first, we're going to see four examples of the extraordinary, godlike, otherworldly love that he just told us. Those four principles that we just discussed. He's going to give us some examples. They, they don't correspond one to one, but there's just sort of in general we have these examples that um, that, that represent that kind of, of a love. But I'm going to kind of move through that quickly. And it's not that they're not important. Uh, I might actually come back to them next week. We're going to talk about them a little bit in the after church. But I want to get to what we call the golden rule. Because that's the, boy, that's the summation. That's the, uh, the, the, the truly important rule. And when we finish with that, if you think that you don't need Jesus, then you're not listening. Or else you've just got a hard heart. Or else you're not thinking. Because in order to keep that rule... We need Jesus. So let's take a look at these four, uh, these four examples that he gives us of the extraordinary love. And once again, keeping in the back of our minds that we really need some help in all of these. And even though these might not be absolutely impossible the way that they're stated, they are quite improbable. The first one he says there in the 29th verse, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. I mean, we're familiar with this. Turn the other cheek is the way we usually express that. Now, the language in English is a little mild from the language in the Greek. It's more of a sock in the jaw, and it's a backhanded slap. So therefore, it's not necessarily just to try to knock someone down or to physically hurt them. It's an insult, almost like, you know, in the old days when 
they used to whack you in the face with their gloves to insult you so you have a, a, a duel? Well, it's that kind, a little bit harder than that, but it's that kind of an insult. So basically what Jesus is telling us here is regardless of whatever the situation is, when you are insulted, even if it's a physical insult, then rather than retaliate, you offer the other cheek. So underlying this is the whole concept of aggression and retaliation. In fact, all of these are going to sort of have that as a theme. Now, not the aggression of the person who is indeed slapping you, but your aggression. How does a kingdom dweller react to either physical or verbal abuse in this sense that is given as an insult? Well, We are clearly taught, and Brother Clayton read it earlier from Romans. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So therefore, the the whole idea of retaliation is not in the vocabulary of a kingdom dweller. And and there's there's some reasons for that, which I'll I'll sort of give a summation of this um, as we get to the end of it. But nonetheless, the second thing that Jesus says is sort of along the same um, vein. When he says, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, as a nuance of this, the reason I say it's the same is because that also would be an insult. Uh, In Jesus' day, pretty much most people only owned a single cloak, and the cloak was your outer garment. It was what you wore, but it was also usually what you used as a blanket at night to keep you warm, and the desert gets cold at night, even when it's hot during the day. And so to take someone's cloak was to subject them to a great degree of discomfort. And so there's an insult there. But when Jesus makes the following statement, if someone takes your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. Well, most of you know that a tunic was that part of their attire that they wore close to the skin. So in other words, basically what Jesus is doing is saying, if someone takes your outer clothing, give them your underwear as well. And in a sense, what he's saying is stand naked before your attacker with nothing to defend yourself. Nothing to protect you, nothing that you put your faith in or that keeps you from shame in this world, just just let it go because guess what? They're not your protectors and those things are not your protectors. God above is your protector. You have got the greatest protector and you don't need to worry about other things to protect yourself. You need to have your faith in God. So if they take your tunic, I mean their cloak, let them take your tunic because after all, the Lord your God is the one who repays, and he's the one who uh, retaliates if that retaliation is necessary. Well, then he, 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 in the 30th verse, kind of turns to, it sounds like financial matters. All of these seem to be material, but none of them actually are. He goes on and says, give to everyone who begs from you. Now, once again, and, and I, as I said, each one of these we could virtually spend a sermon on, but uh, I, I really want to get to the golden rule. Um, it, at least the person who's in question here is asking for something, but it sort of carries the con- connotation of imposing. I, I mean, an obnoxious beggar, if you will. Now, I don't think that this is throwing good stewardship out the window or, or discernment because scripture is extremely 
adamant about. Paul says, if you don't work, don't eat. You know, um, to be lazy and to be poor and begging just because you don't want to work is not what is being discussed here. But assuming that there is a, a person who has a need, even if that person is obnoxious and continues to hound you and you're just really getting aggravated with them, what, what, what the Lord is saying here is you need to be careful because if you have anything to give them, you didn't get it yourself. It's a resource that the Lord has provided you with. And don't turn that resource into an idol. Don't hold on to the things that God has given you too tightly. In fact... Very importantly, in the early church, we have the example of benevolence because they literally obliterated poverty within their midst because the people were giving all that they had so that other people who did not have were taken care of. And so uh, the, the focus is once again on not making too, not getting too attached to the things that you think are yours. But then in the last one, He says, kind of kicks it up to another notch. He seems to do that with the fourth ones. And from the one who takes away your, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Does that mean if someone steals from you that you're not supposed to pursue them? Does that mean that you just let them get away with it? Is that actually beneficial to the thief? To allow the thief simply to steal with no accountability? Is that good for society to allow a thief to be running around out there unpunished just to steal from someone else? Well, I I don't think that's exactly what Jesus means. Again, what we need to realize about the Sermon on the Mount is that this language is carefully chosen. I don't know if you've noticed it. If you haven't noticed, you haven't been paying attention, that he likes to shock you. (laughs) He likes to use shocking language like love your enemies. And so this is, this is kind of one of those ways. The Sermon on the Mount's full of them. It's to kind of shock you. What do you mean I'm not supposed to get my possessions back? I'm just supposed to let them have it? Well, not necessarily, because actually, if you go back into the Old Testament, what did Abraham do when Ketelamer stole Lot and all of his possessions from Sodom? He pursued him, and he got him back. So there are times that that kind of pursuit is perfectly warranted. But then there are also times when it is not. There are times that will work against you. In fact, Paul says this to the Corinthians. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And there's a couple of reasons why. One, One is that idolatry. You know, we talked about idolatry. Just think about what would have happened to the rich young ruler if someone had stolen all of his money. And he went to Jesus and, and Jesus said, follow me. And he didn't have any money that was his idol. It would have been better for him to have had someone steal his money to where he didn't have an idol and he would have followed Jesus. That would have been a very good thing for him. But he, he, he didn't do it. So on the one hand, it speaks again of idolatry. But on the other hand, brothers and sisters, it speaks of what we as kingdom dwellers are called to do. 
Now, are we called to nitpick and to pursue injustices against us all the time? Are are, are we called to be in court? Can you imagine Peter and the disciples in the jail after being wrongly uh, uh, treated by the Sanhedrin? And the angel tells them to go back into the temple and start teaching and preaching again. And they said, sorry, we got to go sue these guys because they treated us wrongly. You see, there's kingdom business that needs to be done. There's a different focus. There's this love of God that needs to be shown through us. And you know, if we're, if we're so interested in righting all the wrongs against us and seeking out every injustice and putting it straight, then we're not going to have time to do the work of the kingdom. And brothers and sisters, the work of the kingdom is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and is not necessarily to be in court all the time. And to be distracted that way. So you can see that underlying all of these are, 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 are ways that kingdom dwellers are, are supposed to actually act. And there's a couple of things that are consistent through all of them. First of all is to be very careful because if you return evil for evil, if you don't return evil for good, if you maintain a focus on yourself, then you are going to retaliate. And if you retaliate, you are returning sin for sin. And that is something that that kingdom dwellers are not called to do. We are not called to set everything right, to to be uh, in perfect judgment. By the way, brothers and sisters, if that's what you're looking for, I, I have some news for you. That if you follow what Jesus teaches you to do, more than likely in the world in which we live, you're going to be taken. I mean, that the whole business about the cloak, uh, and, and it, that's kind of somebody embezzles it from you, or somebody cheats you, or, or takes it illegally. It's not that they just steal it, it's they somehow they get it away from you. People are going to abuse your kindness. They're going to abuse your honesty and your innocence. So if you're going to err, you're going to have to err on the side of that. And just recognize that there is no retaliation as far as we are concerned, that we we respond to aggression with non-aggression. Because that's what Jesus did. Remember when Jesus was before Annas? Remember that? And he said something that the guard didn't like to the high priest, and he slapped him in the face. That's exactly the kind of slap we're talking about. And what did Jesus do? Did he retaliate? Did he slap him back as we would have? No, he did point out the injustice, but he took the slap. And in doing so, as Brother Clayton read earlier, heaped hot coals upon his head. And those are the kinds of things that we are called to do, to avoid these distractions, to avoid returning a sin for sin and evil for evil, because those are the kinds of things that the world does. It is not the kind of thing that the kingdom does. Now, let me just kind of put all, all those aside and bring this to a conclusion so we can go on to the 31st verse. I believe that after the four Uh, the the four impossible things that Jesus causes us to do that are going to require the love of God. He gives us four highly improbable examples of those. Not perfect examples, but they are examples of what we need to do. And by the way, I doubt there's anyone here that has perfectly done that their entire life. So if there is any judgment here, 
If there is any consequence in any of the things that Jesus just mentioned, whether it be turning the other cheek, whether it be um, pursuing and getting your cloak back, whether it be um, to not give to the one who begs from you or to try to get your stolen goods back, if you have failed in any of those and there is any judgment in any of them, then you already stand condemned. You already need Jesus. But just in case you didn't get the message, Jesus goes on in the 31st verse with one of the most profound statements in Scripture. And it goes like this. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, that is what is known as the golden rule. Quite often it's referred to as the golden rule. But at least in the way that I see this, it's one of those no-keep'em rules. You know the no-keep'em rules? There's this zone that we delegate things that we all know, and we kind of think that just knowing about them is all we're supposed to do, and it never crosses our mind to keep them, like stopping at a red light in the middle of the night when nobody's there. You just kind of slip right on through that, do you? Or, or, or being in the park, and the little sign says, stay off the grass, but your, your frisbee goes in there. So you just walk right there. The one that says, don't cross the street except a light. <laughs> okay? Uh, or, or my particular favorite, slower cars stay to the right lane. Uh, well, no, I, I like going 40 miles an hour in a 70 mile an hour zone, so I'm going to sit in the left lane because it's open. And I like this lane a lot better, so I'm going to completely ignore the sign that tells me opposite. That's the no keep them zone. And unfortunately, the golden rule has been put in the no-keep'em zone. Because it's one of those rules that we learn as children. Probably one of the first rules that you learn. Uh, You're in the playground, and I can remember my teacher telling me, Kirby, do not kick dust in Billy's face. Because do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't pull Peggy's hair. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule. And we learn it and we put it aside and we stick it there in the no-keep'em zone. We don't think about it anymore. It's plenty that we know it's there. Well, let me tell you something. That rule is the infinitely thin dividing line between good and evil, between righteousness and unrighteousness, between... God and heaven and hell and an eternity. That's how important this is as to whether or not you understand it and keep it. So it is not a rule by any means to go into the no-keeping zone. Let me see if I can substantiate that. Let's put it into its perspective, first of all. And this is a place, and we've been going through this Sermon on the Mount, I've made it clear several times. It's really nice to have it as the Sermon on the Mount, because that means we can pull from Matthew. We can lean on him sometimes when Luke is not entirely clear, or he has condensed something, um, we can go to Matthew and we can pick up the nuance. Here's what Matthew says about this rule. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
And that's the phrase I want to pick up. This is the law and the prophets. Now, when he says law, he's not talking about just the, four or five, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And when he says prophets, he's not just talking about the major and minor prophets that we have in our scripture. When he says law and prophets, that is code word for the whole revealed word of God, all of scripture. In other words, what he is saying is that this is the summation of God's revelation to us. And it is wrapped up in this rule that I'm going to give you. So what is the revelation? If you were to put it all in a nutshell, how would you define God's revelation? The law and the prophets. Well, fortunately, we don't have to think too hard about that because Jesus has already told us. An attorney asked him and says, what's the greatest commandment in all of Scripture? You know this from Matthew 22. And Jesus responded and said something we read earlier from the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. Everything depends on that commandment. That is number one in the priority of all the things that scripture teaches you. And that is to love the Lord your God with abandon. And he goes on and says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. In other words, they're the culmination of God's revelation. Now Jesus says it a little bit differently. He says the summation of everything that God has taught us is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you because this is the law and the prophets. Now the reason I want you to get that, and I'm kind of emphasizing it, is I want to make sure that you don't lose the priority when Jesus says, what is the greatest commandment? It's the love of the Lord your God. Well, when you, when you quote this, when you talk about this rule, you cannot remove God from the equation as the fallen world and liberal theology has tried to do. Oh, this is a great way for us to treat each other, but we don't have to put God's boundaries around it. Well, that doesn't work because the very first thing that the law and prophets tells you is that God is sovereign and you are to love and desire to please him with your your whole heart. Okay? So you can't remove God from this. And, and it, it's, this is the way they've done it in, in the actual use of it. They say, well, this is just for humans and how humans deal with each other. Well, then, of course, that's picked up and it says, well, if you like people to accept you, well, I happen to like people to accept me. So if you like people to accept me, then you've got to accept me, even though my life is an egregious statement of sin, even though I reject God, even though I do whatever I want to do, because of the golden rule, you have to accept and condone my behavior. That's a perversion of this law. That's not what it says. You cannot take God out of this equation. You can't take his rules, his design. And in fact, you can't take God out. Because I know that the, when, when he says this, you treat others is the word anthropos or from the word anthropos, which means humanity. But I mean, if God is the most important person or, or being for us to please, then treat others as you would treat yourself. I mean, treat God the way that you would be treated. I don't think any of us actually want to think about that because we fail in that so horribly. But this statement as it is, is, is not unique to Jesus, nor is it 
does it originate with him? In fact, um, it was quite common in, in, in different religions and philosophies from all around the world. But for almost all of them, there was a, a, a primary difference. And in fact, they're usually not referred to as the golden rule, but they're referred to as the silver rule. And the reason that they're referred to as the silver rule is because they're stated negatively instead of positively. And you say, well, so what does that matter? So it means the same thing. Well, let me see if I can explain several of those to you. Um, 500 years, or five, the 5th century BC, the, the Greek philosopher Isocrates wrote this. Do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. Anybody see the difference? Can I get a little technical here? You've got to listen. You see a difference in the meaning or the outcome of what Isocrates said. Well, let's continue on. The famous, the celebrated philosopher Confucius from China. This is what he said. Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. Sounds pretty close. Doesn't that mean the same thing? Isn't Jesus just warming over something that someone else said? Well, getting a little bit closer to home. About the time Jesus was born, the greatest rabbi in all of Israel was a a rabbi named Hillel. In fact, there was a whole school of thought that followed Hillel. And the way the story goes, a Gentile came to him one day and he said, Okay, tell me the Hebrew law and the amount of time that I can stand on one foot. And while he's standing on one foot, this is what Hillel says. What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Wow. That, that, that's pretty close, isn't it? And, 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 and is it the same thing? Well, absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, it's infinitely different. According to Hillel's formula... I just have to pick out the things that I hate. Well, I I hate being cheated. I hate people who are cruel to me. And I hate people talking bad about me. So if I want to accomplish Hillel's formula, all I have to do is not cheat people, not talk bad about them, and not be cruel to them. And I can accomplish that. In fact, even though it is hard and you've got to be a really good person, it is humanly possible for me to to accomplish those things. But you see... Jesus turns the whole thing around, and he puts it in the positive. He doesn't say what you hate, don't do to others. He says what you like, do to all others. Okay? Now, you say, I don't get it. All right, let me give you some examples. Um, Annie was a runner, our daughter. And and imagine that Annie's getting ready to go to a, um, a, a meet, and her coach says, Annie, don't lose this race. What does she have to do to accomplish that? She has to not lose the race. Okay? What if the coach says, Annie, I want you to win, win, win? What's the difference? She has to win every race she ever runs from then on. She has to, even if she's running against the finest runners in the world, she still has to run or she has not accomplished that command in the way that it is given. Let's just imagine a student getting ready to go and take a quiz. Student walks out the door and mom says, uh, don't flunk that test or don't flunk that quiz. What does the student have to do? One quiz might have been an easy one. They have to get a passing grade. If the mom says, make straight A's, what does that say? Every quiz, every exam, 
Every test that that student takes for the rest of their educational career, they have to make an A on. Vastly different. When Hillel says, whatever you hate to do, don't do it to others, he is limiting the scope of that incredibly. But when Jesus says, whatever you like others to do to you, do to others, all of a sudden, the possibilities are endless. They're, they're, they're infinite. And you say, so, okay, how does that apply to me? In ways that I think you probably never thought of. Whatever you like others to do to you, do so to them. So you like to eat, huh? You like food. You like it when people feed you, right? Well, if you like it when people feed you, then you need to proactively... Now, this takes in both the concept of commission and omission. You don't want to do something wrong, and you must do that which is right. So, therefore, every person who is in your sphere... And we're getting to the point where the world is in our sphere. Every single person who is in your sphere must be fed. Why? Because you like to be fed. Okay? You like clothes? You don't like to walk around naked, do you? And you don't like to walk around even in clothes that are all ripped and full of holes, although I know that you pay extra for jeans with holes in them now. But I mean, you don't like the the kind of tattered clothes that so many people have to wear. Well, if you like to have be given clothes that make you look good and make you feel good, then you must... If you're going to keep this rule, make sure every person in your, in your sphere is dressed and has the adequate clothes. Well, I can tell you something. Two hours off of, or not even that much, off of our coast, there's an entire country full of people who barely have enough clothes to wear. And some of them never have shoes. When we go to Kentucky, some of those kids from the mountains never have any shoes. So it's, it's no lack of people who don't have clothes to wear. It's just a lack of, well, that's sort of the no-keep'em zone. We don't have to do that. So you like to sleep? You enjoy getting into bed at night. Who doesn't? After a hard day, getting in there, snuggling underneath your covers, a nice comfortable bed, and you know, the rain's falling outside, but who cares? It just kind of lulls you to sleep. Well, if you like to go to sleep, then you have to make sure that everyone within your sphere has a roof over their head to block the rain out, has a comfortable bed to sleep. Am I making my point? Am I making my point? Because it continues on. (laughs) You, You love water, don't you? And we've got a nice bottle full of spring clean water out there. And you like it when someone gives you a glass of clean water. Well, most of the world drinks out of dirty, stagnant ponds. And you have to make sure that they have clean water. Why? Because you like it. Not just physical, it's spiritual too. So you like to be loved. You like it when people love you, don't you? You like to have people who are gathered around you in the fellowship of a Christian environment. You love that love that we have. Well, if you love to be loved, then you have to make sure that the love that God gives you doesn't sit inside of you and stop there, that it is spread and shared with the entire world. So you love Scripture. 
You enjoy reading scripture. You like Bible studies. You have a study Bible in commentaries. And you love to get online and listen to those great theologians. Well, if you love that, then you have to proactively make sure that everyone who has that desire. And what it means is they first have to be educated so that they can read. And then they have to be given Bibles. And then you have to take into consideration that most of the world past the age of 40 can't see anymore. So you have to make sure they have glasses. But the big one, the huge one, so you love Jesus. So you're appreciative that someone shared the gospel with you. So you love the fact that you have been given grace and mercy and salvation. Well, if you love Jesus then you are under the command to make sure that everyone within your sphere hears about the love of Jesus. And I bet most people never even shared their faith once. Do you get the point? The point is simply this, brothers and sisters, you can't keep this command. It's impossible. It's another one of those commands that absolutely is outside the realm of anyone actually being able to keep it. Because it is a command that is a razor's edge. Okay? It is God's command. It is founded on his principles. And it is a command that is a razor's edge. We look at the word golden rule. Rule doesn't necessarily can mean, but it doesn't here necessarily mean a law or a standard. What it means is a measurement. When you have a straight edge, they call it in Europe, a a golden ruler, if you will. It is a, a measuring. There's a straight edge. And you can fall on either one side of that edge or the other. Those of you who are math people or computer nerds, I'm not a math person, but in computers, you do all your plotting as far as screams are concerned on what's known as an X, Y axis. Okay, And, and, and these are lines. And, and, and things fall or points fall either on the left or the right, say, of, a, of an x-axis. Okay, you're either positive or you're negative. No one's in between. There, 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 there's no point that spans the line. It, it is mathematically defined and infinitely thin. And so when you have a whole bunch of pixels, they either fall to the left or to the right of that line. You can't divide the line. It is just that kind of a divisor. Well... That's what this rule is. You are on one side of this line or you are on the other. You don't transcend it. You don't have a foot on each side. Either you have perfectly and completely, since you were born until you die, kept this rule perfectly in all the ways that we have just stated, in omission and commission, or you haven't. And because it's God's law, There's judgment. You see, let me put it in different words. If you keep this law perfectly, not in the no-keeping zone, but your entire life through omission and commission, you, you were able to pull this off, then you can go to heaven. Seriously, I'm not joking. You, you, you go ahead. You're, you're there. 
You've done it. You've done the impossible. You walk right into heaven. And guess what's going to happen when you pass the pearly gates? There's going to be a celebration the like of which they haven't seen since Jesus' ascension. Because he's the only other being. He's not just a man. He's a God-man. You would be the only ex-human who was in heaven who actually entered there on their own capability. And so you're a celebrity. From then on, because you only have one equal, and that's Jesus. So if you perfectly keep it, you are in. But if you fail once, once, once you do not do unto others of the billions of people in your sphere and the billions of different ways you could do what you like to them, if once you fail, then you find yourself on the other side of that line. It's just that thin. And that's why I say this is the line between good and evil, between right and wrong, between righteousness and unrighteousness, between salvation and condemnation, between heaven and hell. Because if you keep this law perfectly, you're in. If you miss it once, you are condemned. Jesus says, throw them into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are cheery thoughts for a Sunday morning, aren't they? I mean, that's why you came to church, right? So that you'd be encouraged. Well, let me tell you something. Those thoughts should lead you to the most blessed, sweetest words that anyone can ever say. Lord, I need you. Because I realize I can't do this on my own. I realize that I'm lost. Those are the words that I spoke when I came to know the Lord. On that day and so many years ago now. I I didn't say the words exactly. Lord, I need you. But that's what I meant when I said, God, help me. And when I said, God, help me, I meant it from the fiber, the very center of my being. I was lost. I I was gone. And I knew it. I recognized that. Well, let me tell you something. To recognize that you're a sinner and repent and turn to Jesus and say, Lord, I need you. I need you desperately. I need you to forgive me. I need you to atone for my sins. I need you to prepare a place for me. I need you. I need you. I need you. Those are the sweetest words that anyone can actually say and mean. And man, if you say those words and you know them to be true, blessed are you. You see, that's why we do such an inservice, disservice when we don't talk about the negatives, when we don't talk about the impossibility of keeping God's law. Because his wrath will come down upon us and there is judgment for our sins. And everybody says, oh, no, no, that's negative. It's not negative. It's positive. It drives you to the cross. It drives you to your need for Jesus. So if you have never accepted Jesus as your Savior, he he says, Revelation says that I stand at the door and knock. You know what he's saying? There are different things he's saying, but he's saying, you need me. You can't do this on your own. It's designed that way. That's why I teach you what I teach you. You can't fix what's wrong with you. However, if you will repent and turn to Jesus and give him your heart to accept him, that means to trust in him 100% as your savior and to follow him and submit to him as your Lord. And you mean that, then let me tell you something. Jesus came to save you and he will save you. That's the glory of this. But you know, I have to keep going back to what we 
what we looked at uh, right at the very beginning of this Sermon on the Mount when Jesus fixed his eyes on his disciples. I, I, I just keep applying this to those, I don't care how long you've been a believer. In, in fact, I find that the closer, the more I walk in the faith, the more I need him, the more I realize I need him. You know, I had to fit through that narrow gate at first, you know, and I had all that baggage, all those idols that wouldn't fit through with me. And then I got on that hard road and that hard road is tough, but I am reminded over and over again how much and how desperately I need Jesus. So I wrote some things down. And I hope as I kind of flesh this out, this need that I have for Jesus, that you follow along in your heart and your mind. Because the words that I'm about to share with you are to me the sweetest words that I can possibly articulate. Because I know that I'm guaranteed a place in heaven because of these words. Because I can say in the depth of my soul, I need Jesus. So Lord, I need you. I need you for my salvation, and now I need you for my sanctification. Lord, I need you to get me through that narrow gate because I can't leave that luggage behind. I need you to strip me one by one of all those idols so that I can get through that narrow gate. And now that I am on that narrow road, that hard road, Jesus, every time I hit an incline, I need you to walk beside me and push me up. Every time I hit a landslide, I need you to stop me. Every time I almost fall into a pit, I need you to be there. Lord, I need you every single step of the way. I cannot make a step without you. I need you, Lord, when I am weak. When I am weak, that's when the enemy comes to tempt me. And I fear that I will fall into that temptation. But I didn't realize until I started following you that I need you even more when I feel strong. Because then my pride comes up and I say, I can do it on my own. So knock me down. Teach me how desperately I need you. Especially when I'm feeling strong. Lord, help me finish this race. I want to finish the race well. I need you to see me all the way through. I need you to give me strength. I need you to be on the sidelines and encourage me. I need you to guide me through the darkness. I need you to be there in every single step that I take in this race. Lord, I need you. I don't know how to love like I should. I certainly don't know how to love the way that you are teaching us to love here. Lord, I need you to teach me and to show me your love and how that love should be manifest. Lord, I, I need you to, to show your image in me, to speak through me. Lord, I need you to be the light of the world that emanates from me. Lord, I need you to be the everlasting water that bubbles up out of my soul. Lord, I need you to help me in this world that I am in. And someone uh, accuses me or insults me. I need you to help me not turn the other cheek or to turn the other cheek. Sorry. I need you to not put so much emphasis on the things that I have to protect me. And I trust in you in every circumstance to be the one who is going to protect me and see me through. I need you, dear Lord, to not let me put my focus and my idolatry on the resources that you have given me, but freely give to others as you have given to me. Lord, I need you to focus me on the 
work of the kingdom and motivate me towards that work. Don't let me get distracted as so often is the case. Let me stay focused on you and focused on this kingdom as, as, as complete. Lord, I need you to help me forgive these perceived injustices against me by other people. Lord, I need you to help me keep this golden rule. I can't do it without you. I need you to teach me or show me, give me an understanding how expansive that rule is and how impossible it is for me to keep it. And Lord, I need you to forgive me when I fail. I need you to overflow me with your mercy. I need you to fill me with your grace. I need you to fill me with your compassion. And then I need you to turn around and unleash that mercy, grace, compassion, and forgiveness on those who are around me. Lord, I need you. I need you as I go through my time of sanctification and I struggle against the evil one and I struggle against the old man. I need you to sanctify me and make me more like you every day. Lord, I need you to be my prophet. I need you to be my priest. I need you to be my king. Lord, I need you to be Lord of my life. Lord, I need you to be Savior of my life. I need you to be protector of my life. I need you to be God. And be God to me manifested through and through. Lord, I need you. I need you to be my brother. I need you to be my shepherd. I need you to be my friend. Every moment... Every hour, every day, now and for the rest of my life, and indeed for all eternity, Jesus, Lord, I need you. Those are the sweetest words that I could ever articulate because they come from the heart. Are they yours? Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Those who don't think they need you, need you more than than they can imagine. Oh Lord, let them not wait until they stand before you in judgment to recognize how much they need you. Lord, may those who think they're going to, to do that, Lord, teach them the lessons that we have learned here which is that we can't keep any of these commandments and that they're designed that way, that there's judgment and condemnation in it. And so therefore we need you. We need you so completely and totally and fully. And those who are gathered here and maybe watching online now or later on who might think that, you, well, I needed you for salvation, but it's, now it's the balls in my court, help them to realize that that need only intensifies as they walk along that hard road, as they make that pilgrimage towards the celestial city, Lord, teach us all how sweet are the words that we articulate when we say, Jesus, Lord, I need you. In your name we pray, amen.